Welcome to the Report Card with Matt Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Well, it's fair to say that the coronavirus pandemic is one of the most significant disruptions our education system has ever faced. Summer vacation is in sight, and this year, a lot of folks are looking at a dull summer and are hoping to get back in buildings and see a little normalcy. And so we have a lot of students and parents wondering, what is the game plan for school next year? Will school buildings be open in September? Will the once familiar routine of riding the bus to school at eight and coming home at three return? Well, today on the report card, I talked with Candace McQueen and my AEI colleague, Rick Hess, about what it will take to get kids back to school and the considerations leaders need to keep in mind when drafting school reopening plans. Candace McQueen is the CEO of the National Institute for Excellence in Teaching, and previously she served as Tennessee's Commissioner of Education and the Dean of the College of Education at Lipscomb University, and she started her career in the classroom. Rick Hess is a resident scholar and the Director of Education Policy Studies at AEI. Rick is the author of the Edweek blog, Rick Hess Straight Up. He's a regular contributor to a number of outlets and a frequent guest on the podcast. Candace, Rick, welcome to the report card. Great to be here. Hey, good to be here. So let me start by asking the question on everybody's minds. Are our kids going to be back in classes in the fall? And who decides if and when we're going to reopen schools? I think kids will be back in schools across a lot of the country. Schools won't necessarily look like they usually do. It's going to depend on the community, on the public health situation, but I think we can expect they'll be back in lots of places. That's going to be a decision first and foremost of the governor of the state. And then if a governor says that we're open for business, it's going to be a decision of local officials and school officials. Well, before we get too far into what leaders should be doing next year, let me back up for a minute and ask about what's been happening the past few months. Candace, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what you've seen as the ups and downs of teachers and districts' responses so far. I mean, what's working, what's not working, and maybe we don't know yet enough to point to answers to those questions. Yeah, this spring was quite a hodgepodge of experiences across states. And many places you saw a retreat to no grading, no feedback, but, you know, paper packets for work, maybe some virtual learning that looked different even across districts and schools within the same state. But you saw a lot of people trying, people regrouping, trying to rethink curriculum, rethink their instruction, and also try to serve as best they could in food delivery, in ways they were trying to get devices out. And so amidst what I would consider a chaotic moment, there was a lot of a good, a good try and some positive spots where we saw people um, really digging into the virtual learning in ways that they never had before, going deeply into how do you make sure kids are getting the feedback and the development they need in a, in a health pandemic. At the same time, I would say that we had probably less than 50% of kids by all accounts across the country who were truly engaged in that level of learning. And it's probably a much smaller number when you think about some of our larger school districts who actually have let out early or who, who essentially closed the year out uh, without any kind of dramatic change in students' grades or any feedback 
you know, starting back all the way back to March 15th. So I would say we did have some bright spots, but they are few. Most were in places where you already had some type of LMS in place, which is a learning management system. You already had some work that was happening on the online learning front, or you had a situation where there was an independent school, a charter school, some smaller school structure where moving to virtual learning uh, was just easier because of the scale. Yeah, certainly a lot of challenges to overcome and not much time to do it. Well, looking on the next year, I'm sure there's a bunch of district and school leaders who are gonna be glad to have at least a couple of months buffer to prepare, but that's actually not a lot of time. You know, Rick and Candace, both of you served as co-authors of this document that aimed to give guidance for reopening schools in the fall. AEI released it, I think last week, called the Blueprint for Back to School. Rick, could you tell me a bit about the report? Who wrote it? Who's it for? And what can folks expect to find when they read it? Sure. Uh, it was inspired, um, I and I think some of the other co-authors were hearing what sounded like a lot of potential excuse making from folks in states and school systems who were saying, you know, we might not be able to come back in the fall, even if the public health officials give the okay, because, because there's so many moving parts, because there's so many issues. And I think the inspiration for the blueprint was saying, look, guys, if the public health situation means that kids can't go to school, that's one thing. But if public health situation, which most people seem to expect, is that kids can go to school with accommodations, with modifications, if we have planned appropriately, then we have to get planning. That, w w that is not an acceptable excuse for doing, not doing right by kids and right by families. So John Bailey, our colleague here at AEI and I, reached out to a bunch of the people who we find to be most thoughtful, most dynamic, most inclined to problem solve in the education space. A lot of them are in and around the ongoing AEI education working group that you and I convene. These were folks who've led state education systems, who've led uh, school districts, uh, who work in the traditional public school space and in the charter school space, folks who worked uh, at the White House or top levels of the Department of Education under Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama. And the idea was to get folks who could think about the problem in terms of all of its moving parts. What has to happen in Washington? What has to happen in communities? Uh, what do we have to do in thinking about the public health dimension, the staffing dimension, the operational dimension? and trying to sketch out a framework that can help folks in communities, in schools, in states, have a sense of what's ahead and, and plan accordingly. So I understand the blueprint talks about a number of different areas. Let me just sort of pick on a few of those and tease some of these things out. What about the considerations regarding teachers and other school staff? I mean, you obviously have to have your staff have a functioning school. What do state and district leaders need to be thinking about with regard to personnel coming back in the fall? Candace? Yeah, I would first say there has to be a consideration around the staff who may fall into high-risk categories. And by all accounts, we have about one in five teachers and one in four 
principals who would fall in a category that are over the age of 55 or may have other health considerations. So that's job one. Do you have the staff? Do you have the faculty available to actually conduct teaching and learning in the way that you um, need to going into next year? The other staff considerations are, do you have substitutes lined up? Do you have bus drivers who also are going to be available and ready to take on face-to-face next year? And, and ultimately, do you have people who are going to be able to assist with remediation or intervention or small group learning as you consider the gaps that are going to exist um, and the catch-up that's going to be needed in the fall? So there are many staff considerations. And, and I think, too, the one that we probably don't talk about near enough is do you have the staff to actually help with health and security measures that you're trying to take? Who's actually monitoring kids with any protocols you have as they get off of the bus or come into the building? Do you have hall monitors as you're thinking about kids all walking in one direction potentially? Um, or, or bathrooms, how many kids are in the bathroom at any one time? Do you have teachers manning the bathrooms in the hallways? There are a variety of staffing considerations as you consider face-to-face interaction going into the fall. Yeah, there are so many details to work out, and it seems like an abundant challenge, but it's different from what we're facing now, right? I mean, my thought is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, what we're dealing with now is just a different set of challenges than we're looking, hopefully, to in the fall, because I imagine in the fall, we're expecting at least a lot of buildings in operation, but not like we're used to. I'm curious about some of the nitty-gritty school operations. Things like meals and transportation, which are, you know, top of mind for a lot of principals. Will those things be business as usual? Or are we going to have to totally re-engineer how kids get to school and how kids eat lunch? You know, I think it's going to depend on the community. If you've got communities that, you know, again, we're talking three months off, Uh, So we'll see what kind of shape, you know, the curve is in. But, (laughs) so uh, you know, we're talking about a situation still a few months off, and so we'll see what what local public health situations look like. Uh, Look, if you've got a community that has no reported incidents where they're able to, you know, do regular testing to check in, and you don't have any uh, incidents in the community, school transportation, school staffing, is probably going to look, you know, a lot like we're used to. If you're in a lot of communities, though, where you're going to have uh, some degree of cases in the community where, where you're testing aggressively uh, and you're concerned about folks coming into the building, then what you're going to have to do is make accommodations. In terms of transportation, you might need to organize uh, busing in a way that respects social distancing. If you want to make sure kids are six feet apart on a bus, that probably means you got to run buses half full, which may require either only bringing half the number of students to class or getting your hands on extra buses. In cafeterias, school cafeterias, you're generally having a lot of kids in one place. That may no longer be an option. So you might either be taking kids to cafeterias in small groups You might organize uh, cafeterias with social distancing. Uh, You might have kids eating in the classroom. So a lot of this stuff, we're not sure. It's going to depend on local context. It's going to depend upon what's feasible. Uh, That's why it's so important to plan now. Just one other, for instance, in a lot of big uh, urban systems, a lot of kids get to school by mass transit. Well, we know that mass transit 
is A, creates real concerns about contamination, and quite reasonably, a lot of parents and kids may be apprehensive about using mass transit. So in some of the nation's uh, big city school systems, it's not at all clear exactly how you handle transportation questions. Yeah, I I would add you would also need to think through um, protocols that are going to impact large groups of students. For instance, will you have any gathering places whatsoever? How will you have to designate or mark off things like playgrounds or meeting places that you typically would have seniors gather between classes? Or how might you think through visitors coming into the building and protocols that you would have for that or after school activities? And then what are the cleaning protocols that would be added on top of any kind of protocol that's put in place? So it is, it is, it's overwhelming. It feels overwhelming when you start ticking through all of the considerations. But if you don't plan now, I think this is the message, you will not be ready for any type of face-to-face or remote learning experience going into the fall. And, and I, would, I believe that there are real possibilities that folks may not start face-to-face. They actually may start remotely again, continuing to try to get to a place in a particular community where you don't have a spike in the number of cases over a period of time that our local and state and and certainly national health officials are recommending. And so you may start one way and come back another way. And so not planning for what those transitions are going to look like will be a mistake. And while we have been given lots of grace as educators this spring, that grace will look different going into the fall. So the scenario planning, walking through the different um, exercises of which plan will we start with, what, what might we have to shift to, is critical going into the summer. Candace, we're talking about the complexities that schools are facing in trying to get back to normal, but they're not getting back to normal. Kids are going to be behind. How do you think state district leaders can think about addressing those academic challenges? And are there some groups of students that are just going to need a particular focus set of attention more so than others? Yeah, the answer to your last question is yes. We are going to have students who are probably our most vulnerable that will be further and further behind as we have what would be an exacerbated summer loss going into the fall. So our challenge will be to ensure that we have enough information, whether that's survey data, diagnostic information, to know where to start and also to create a plan where you are considering the standards and skills that they may have lost in the spring or may have gotten you know, an inch thick when it really needed to be a foot, foot thick. How do you create some type of co-requisite learning where they're getting those potential lost skills while they're accelerating toward the new standards and skills for the school year? Because what you don't want to do is spend half of a year just remediating some things that happened this year. That, that's not the right path forward if you're going to keep kids caught up. You just continue to get farther and farther behind. So it's critical right now to be working with your curriculum providers, your professional development providers, to make sure they are working directly with you as thought partners on how to map that out. How might you think through the standard and skill remediation that could be a value for all students? And then what about those that are most vulnerable? Your students that may be in special populations, your students that had no remote learning, the ones you could not even get in contact with during the spring, will be the ones that will need to be on individualized plans for individual tutoring, expert small group instruction before or after school, and we absolutely should be considering ways that we lengthen the school year and lengthen the school day 
to help with that co-remediation that will be needed. You know, just hearing this, this is some tough medicine, right? I mean, it's tough. This is like a school district leader's form of a disaster movie, right? And kids are going to come in late. I'm only going to have some of my staff. We're going to have to revamp operations. So forgive me if I add on one more layer. But Rick, you and I wrote uh, some together on the appropriateness of shutting down state testing requirements this spring. But tests are important and they have vital uses in schools. Should parents and students and administrators expect testing to come back online next fall or next spring? Uh, They should. They should. I mean, I think in the fall, we're going to see testing with a focus on uh, what, what educators usually talk about is formative assessment, trying to figure out where kids are, what they need. But I think, look, it's going to be important next spring that we get back to regular state assessments because it's important that we get a read on what's happening in these uh, state educational systems. It's important that we get a sense of how kids are faring. It's important that we get a sense of whether there are populations of kids or subjects that are getting shortchanged. Candace, I'm curious, in, in your time leading the state of Tennessee, I'm sure you dealt with testing issues quite a lot, but the first round of testing, if there's going to be something done in the fall, that's, that's going to be a very different style of test, set of tests, use for those tests. If districts decide we got to take stock in the fall of where our kids are, how hard is it going to be for districts to roll out that sort of Uh, different style, different purpose of testing. Well, challenging if you think about it at scale, unless you are considering how do you repurpose something that you had maybe planned for the spring into something that could be delivered in the fall. I'll give an example. The Texas Education Agency is using their spring test as an optional tool for feedback and uh, continuous improvement right now. Uh, Could you take a version of what they're doing and do the exact same thing going into the fall across the state. So you're offering that as options, or if a district has a better idea, something better than what could be offered through that state optional test, then that could be approved. But again, that needs to be thought through now as you're going into the spring. The other things that I've heard that I think are really strong ideas are how do you take all of your staff, again, the ones that are not vulnerable, that can be with students face-to-face, or if you're in a remote setting, take all staff that would be available to you and do some individualized conversations directly with students about key standards, key skills, some key problems, key text, and also build in some social and emotional questions where every student is getting a touch point that doesn't feel like you're handing them a test on the first day back, but it's very personalized with some academic component embedded where you could come out with a fairly strong picture of every single student and where their gaps may be, and where you could collectively begin to improve your efforts with small groups or what you might want to prioritize in your classrooms. Rick, Candace mentioned the the social, emotional needs that students face. Uh, The Blueprint does talk about how in the fall those supports are really going to need to be there. Can you say a little bit more about how you discuss that in the report? Sure. I mean, you know, the most important thing is to think about (laughs) that kids are coming back from something which has just been a bizarre and, you know, it's going to be a really problematic experience for a lot of them. Uh, There are kids who haven't interacted with their peers 
in real life for over two months at this point. For some of those children, it's going to be three, four months perhaps before uh, they really start to have any kind of normal interactions with peers. Uh, there are kids in abusive environments. There are kids who are in difficult or, or, or unsafe homes where parents have lost jobs or, or suffering from mental illness. So there's all that. But, but even for kids who are in you know, stable homes, this is crazy stuff. So the idea that we want to get kids plugged in for the fall in classrooms or sometime in classrooms or online, and that we're just going to start trying to get them to master content without thinking about all of these challenges they've been through is nuts. So part of this is going to be trying to, as Candace mentioned, assess what kids need in ways that are appropriate and non-intrusive and constructive. Some of it is going to be really thinking hard about how schools can do more to support and offer what kids need. And some of it is to think about how do we tackle academics with an eye to the situation in which kids are operating. Well, it's, it's an important piece. appreciate the work you and your collaborators put into it. Again, it's called Blueprint for Back to School, and I encourage listeners to take a look at it. There's a long laundry list of things that need to get taken care of, and there's not as much time as one would hope to prepare for it. Who do you think, Candace, should take the lead as far as drafting these reopening plans and getting these things in place? And what are sort of the appropriate roles at the federal, state, and, and local district level? I think it's critical that a state department takes the lead in creating a task force or some group of individuals that represent a variety of stakeholders to begin to map out a framework for reopening that would be specific to the local context and then provide that framework for the local districts to then begin to put in all of these details. I mean, we've just gone through a laundry list of things that, that only it hits the surface of what will need to be considered and thought through going into uh, 2021. So uh, the state needs to take that leading role. It's critical for that to happen because your districts are going to be looking for some way to assess, are they on the right track? Do they have the uh, approval, if you will, from the governor and the state officials on the direction they're moving? And they may actually need some cover on the decisions that they're making. And so having that overall framework would be helpful. And I think in this situation, while many of us are in states that harp on local control, I think there is a need for more state investment and conversation and direction than not. And then certainly your local communities that may have had no, you know, COVID-19 cases, or they may not have experienced some of the health issues that others can be a little bit more open and flexible in those directions. But this, this is a, an issue that the state has to take a lot more investment. Rick, just in closing, if you were going to offer a piece of advice or a word of caution to leaders as they plan for schools to reopen, what would you advise them? And Candace, I'm going to ask you the same question next. But first, Rick, what, what one piece of advice or word of caution to leaders as they plan for the schools to reopen, what would you give them? Uh, you know, let me, let me give them three. One, don't kid yourselves that remote learning uh, has been successful. You know, we're hearing a lot of folks saying, well, it's going to get a lot better. We're working on it. Look, uh, I, mean, I think it's pretty clear that School districts have done what they have to do, but this is not working anything like it we'd like it to for most kids and most families. 
A second thing is, as you think about reopening, it's a huge mistake for local districts that are thinking about putting together a reopening task force that's just out of the school district. Uh, This should be obvious, but apparently it's not, that you really have to have parents and community members and and, and staff members engage in this decision. It can't just be uh, administrators because folks have got to be willing to send their kids back into school. Educators have got to want to have got to be willing to come to school and they need to feel like they have a voice. And then, look, third and and most important is that it actually really matters that we get schools open because kids and families need to have a place where they connect with communities. Kids need a place where they connect with friends and mentors. Kids who are in troubled or abusive households need a chance to get out. Parents need to be able to work. So the idea that, well, maybe remote learning hasn't worked so well, but we'll get better at it and we're going to just kind of, you know, feel our way for the next six or 12 months, I think it vastly underestimates how much America's kids and families really need schools to step up. I hear you there, Rick. And I'll tell you, my kids need to go to school and I need my kids to go to school. So I'm right there (laughs) with you. Candice? Any words of advice to leave the, the podcast with? Yeah, I, I appreciate Rick's comments very much, but maybe I have a, a, a bit of a different take. I, I actually think that we are going to be involved in some fashion in remote learning next year uh, because I'm not sure that we have the risk tolerance yet until we have some sense of a vaccine and some sense of um, some security around that. And so with, with that unknown, I think it's, it's not healthy as a school district or a state to not to be considering how you support remote learning at, at the level that it needs to be supported. Because I agree with Rick, it's not, it has not been where it needs to be. And I worry that we're still going to struggle with it if we don't consider some real serious elements of improving teaching and learning, thinking about the device, divide the connectivity issues that we have. And I'm proud that many places are stepping up on that in ways that are bringing together you know, state, philanthropic, private partnerships to figure out those things together from professional development to the the connectivity. The other thing that I would mention is this is a health pandemic and to, you know, step back and really look at this from a, a big picture perspective, it is reassuring that we have had some level of teaching and learning going on, but I will restate what I stated before. Grace is getting further and further behind us. And so we are going to have to be thoughtful about when we bring folks face-to-face, which I also desire to happen, we need schools to start back. We've got to be ready for that and not to take seriously the health and safety protocols that are going to need to be in place. We'll immediately have absenteeism. It will have parents not invested in sending their kids back, and then we'll be right back where we started. So we've got to take this seriously and invest now to consider what all of those things are. And this report really starts pointing those out for people in the local communities. Well, it certainly is a long list of challenges that school district leaders are going to have to grapple with in the fall, and the fall comes quickly. So thank you both for this blueprint. It's a helpful outline and start to a a lot of the work that's going to be done over a long, hot summer. Thanks for both of you for coming on. Hey, thanks, Paul. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guests, Candace McQueen and Rick Hess. I also want to thank our producers. They make this podcast possible. That's Matt Rice and Tyler Hoover. 
For more on what it will take to reopen schools, you can read the full blueprint for back to school at AEI.org. Remember to subscribe to the report card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to leave us a review. It helps other folks find the podcast. As always, send us your comments, questions, or your topic suggestions to ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. Thank you.